everybody there it is the wonderful tune free weed from danny danko brought to you by high times so thank you to dj shock and winstrong for the tune this is episode number 62 taped live at the epic denver high times cannabis cup 2014 yes sir welcome back dan that was a that was quite the cup that we just returned from yeah april 19th and april 20th which has a significance uh with the stoner community of course no the 420 the 420 yeah yeah that's the 420 yeah we were fortunate enough to uh the show that you're about to hear was recorded live at the denver cannabis cup on 420 on 420 with a illustrious panel of growers most of whom and i think all of whom we've had on the show uh canny from tricomb technologies scott from rare dankness uh, Don and Aaron from DNA Genetics, Philip Haig from uh, Gaia Plant-Based Medicine, and, of course, the illustrious and legendary DJ Short, uh, who also appeared on the panel as well. So it was interesting. We we talked about a lot of grow stuff. We had some uh, surprises. We well, took some questions. Let's get into all that in a, in a second. But first, maybe we should just give a general recap of our cup. I mean, this was the second uh, U.S. cup held in Denver. Yes. And the first one with, uh, you know, full recreational sales allowed for anyone over 21, uh, even outside of Colorado residents, could, could go. And, uh, and many did. And that many, allowed us to many, do many, the, many, many uh, did. our Freedom Trail, which resulted in the People's Choice Cup. Because yes. people could literally go around to these pot shops if they were over 21 and buy weed and sample it. And Honestly, then there were so many people from out of state. So many people from all over. Yeah, Green Solution pretty much powered through uh, People's Choice Cup for Hash for the uh, Golden Goat Shatter and uh, People's Cup Choice Cup for Flowers with the Presidential Kush. But, uh, yeah, I mean, tons of people, like the big guys. Um, Green Solution did great. I mean, they won in the other uh, other categories as well. MMJ America for first place, Best Indica, Larry OG, um, Ghost Train Haze, uh, Jilly Bean, all these amazing strains. Um, and now you you were a judge for this one, right? Yes. And what indeed. was your category? It was uh, medical concentrates. And actually, the winner of that was Sour Jilly from Green Dream Health Services and TC Labs, our friends over at TC Labs. And the second place was Jilly Bean, too. So yeah, Jilly Bean. People were really digging that, like, you know, that Jilly Tangy kind of, um, you know, citrus flavor and all that so that was cool and then third was uh south african durban poison wax from advanced medical alternatives and dab city concentrates which was a real like uh real sativa wax i really love those like racy racy um you know snap and pull shatters uh and that was one of those with just incredible flavor and a really uh really electric high yeah, and did you did you try any of the weed? Uh, there was a lot of categories because this was both a medical cup and a U.S. cup. Right, so double the categories. Double the categories, so. but what, what stood out to you? Anything in particular? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I love the Golden Goat. That that's always a you know that's a Colorado, it's a Colorado legend. Thing, yeah. yeah, it's one of their strains. That's just kind of a signature strain that they've had. It's a sativa. Um, it got third in the uh, medical hybrids uh, from Green Solution, and I think uh, maybe even somewhere in the uh, Shatter categories or something too. But uh, yeah, the Ghost Train Haze, of course, like all that rare dankness stuff um, is amazing. The uh, the Moonshine Haze and things like that from Scott. We talked about that a bit in the seminar as well. Um, yeah, I mean, God, there was just so much good bud and so much good shatter and so much good wax um, and solventless. I mean, we didn't really even mention that, but you know, the people doing the solventless have really stepped up their uh, ice water game. I mean, uh, essential extracts, of course, you know, Nicotee. Yeah, everybody Nicotee, yes. Yeah, we've had him on. He took first in uh, US and second in medical non-solvent hash. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's, you know, that Bruce Banner from uh, River Rock uh, took third in U.S. Um, Boss Ice Wax from Infusions. Um, Blueberry Waltz was the winner in Medical Non-Solvent, which was really, uh, really amazing. That was Natural Mystic Cannabis Caregivers. And, yeah, I mean, we can't really go right now and name them all off. They're all at hightimes.com. You can check out all the winners. You can check out video of the winners. You can see pictures of all the shatter and the hatch and you know compare it to what you're getting back home and you can see that like you know depending on where you might be there is a whole different level of connoisseurship going on right now at the highest level of of you know cannabis uh, extracts and uh, cultivation of the plant itself and you, you know we we say it over and over again but you can't get great concentrates without great bud and it has to be grown well so you know we need each other in the concentrate <laughs> world and in the and then the grower world you know that there's a lot of symbiotic relationships going on there and that's why you'll see like sometimes these collaborations are like three or four you know people deep as far as you know here's the grower who grew the bud here's the you know machine that we used was you know giddy emotech and then we um you know we purged it with these ovens and you know there's just so much uh collaboration going on which is really good to see because people are sharing the tech and uh you know the quality is just going up for everybody indeed so as dan mentioned uh go to hightimes.com the first thing you'll see there is that list of winners so check that out also a bunch of videos and galleries so definitely investigate that i just want to say it was a hell of a cup we had something like 38 38,000 people in attendance at the Denver Mart, which is incredible. Yeah, very incredible. And I remember after last year saying something like, uh, you know, we'll never do one that big again. And uh, here we are. We doubled it. (laughs) We doubled it. Um, But with a bigger venue and, uh, you know, uh, more space for everybody and tons of booths. I mean, we've never gone so big. And I got tons of compliments from people. Um, You know, of course, you get the occasional complaint, but the majority of the attendees and the vendors were just like over the moon with uh, the amount of business, the amount of things that they got. I mean, if you paid 80 bucks to get in for two days, I'm pretty sure you walked away with more than $80 worth of, of, you know, swag and things that were given out. I'm pretty sure you definitely smoked more than 80 bucks worth of uh, wax and, and bud. And, you know, I just, I think people got, you know, people got what they wanted and for the most part and, uh, you know, it was just a really epic way to celebrate 420 in a legal state. I think it was the place to be on 420. We had tons of celebs, Redman, uh, you know, all the performers, Ice Cube, and 
you know. I didn't see Redman. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Redman was there yeah, G- uh, for uh, the weekend. Tommy Chong was there. I saw Tommy Henry Chong, Rollins Henry somewhere Rollins, in the crowd. Matis Yahoo gave uh, out an award. Busy B, mm. uh, hip hop originator. Busy B was there. He's yeah. a big cannabis supporter. And yeah, I mean, we just, you know, people, it was the place to be. It was. And on our side, on the free weed side, that was pretty amazing, too. We had a lot of people come up and say they're fans of the show. It was nice to meet uh, all those folks. And yeah, shout out to everybody who, like, either sang the song or mentioned free weed or, you know, tweeted and Instagrammed us during the thing. And we met so many fans. And, like, you guys are awesome. You guys really are the reason we do this. And hearing that kind of feedback from you in person and getting to meet you face to face was amazing and uh, I tr- we truly appreciate all the kind words you guys have for us and that's what keeps us going and makes us you know eager to keep putting this information out there for you guys for free indeed so this seminar that you're about to hear this live free weed was recorded on sunday it was a little before 420 but it was on the day 420 and uh, it was it was a, a great little seminar. One of my favorite highlights, you'll hear it if you listen to the whole thing, is during the Q&A at the end where a sheriff has a question for you guys. <laughs> and it's just, you guys got to just listen to it. It's really, it's very interesting. So Yeah, stick around uh, for that ending because it, there's, there's some interesting, uh, interesting interaction with the law enforcement uh, community and the cultivation community. Yes. So why don't we get to it and then we'll come back at the end and wrap it up with Raw. Let's do it. You're at the High Times U.S. Cannabis Cup on 420 in Denver. Woo! (laughs) So, all right, here. We got an excellent live recording of Free Weed, and Dan is going to introduce the panel. Later on, we're going to take some questions from you guys if you have anything from our panelists. But first, let me introduce you to High Times Senior Cultivation Editor and the host of Free Weed, this is Danny Danko. All right. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate the love and support you guys have given to the podcast and to High Times and everything we've been doing. Uh, this is just really surreal and incredible to see uh, all these people get together, all these smiles and just all this wonderfulness. We are an example to the world right now of the cannabis plant and all that it can give us. And one of the coolest things about the cannabis plant is our ability to grow our own. It's very important. Very important. Because I don't think any of you guys are interested in buying marijuana from Monsanto or Marlboro or anybody like that. So growing your own is very important. And this panel is filled with experts on growing your own. So I'm going to introduce them one at a time. And... uh, and let you know a little bit about what they do if you don't already know. Uh, To my right, right here, is Mr. Philip Haig. He is the head grower for Gaia Plant-Based Medicine. He grows marijuana on a huge scale, and yet he doesn't compromise quality for quantity. And it's very important. Yeah. He's a master grower. He really understands... uh, growing cannabis, but he also understands growing on an industrial level, uh, what it takes to grow in an indoor acre, which is actually what they have at Gaia, 44,000 square feet, over 800 lights in the flowering area, 168 lights in the vegging area. So we're going to get into some of that with him, but welcome, Philip. 
Uh, Thanks for having me, folks. It's uh, (laughs) great to be here. Right on. We're going to get right into it with him as well. Uh, To his right, Don and Aaron of DNA Genetics. Winners, Winners of, I don't even know how many cannabis cups, but dozens of cannabis cups over the years, pretty much winning every contest they enter in Europe and the U.S. uh, with some amazing strains like L.A. Confidential and Martian Mean Green and Kosher Kush. So uh, these guys, you know, they have a booth. They have seeds. uh, No, we don't. No seeds. No, we don't. No seeds. But lots of gear. Lots of gear. And uh, you can check them out and ask them questions if you're interested in growing the tangy or any of the wonderful strains that they have. So welcome, guys. Thank you. What's up, Danny? Thanks for having us, Denver. Much respect. Thanks, Danny, for letting us be up here again. Right on. And to Aaron's right is Scott from Rare Dankness. Scott Reach. He has also won multiple cannabis cups with strains like uh, the Ghost Train Haze and uh, some really amazing genetics. And he also, uh, like Philip, grows on a really large scale for River Rock uh, and... He's got a seed company called Rare Dankness here based out of Colorado and and Spain as well, right? So uh, welcome, Scott, and thanks for being on the panel. Thank you, thank you. To Scott's right, an absolute legend in the cannabis breeding world, uh, creator of strains that you guys all know and love, like Blueberry, Flow, Old Time Moonshine, and a number of others, Mr. DJ Short. Thank you, DJ, for coming here and appearing on this panel. We really appreciate it. Um, and to his right, last but definitely not least, is uh, Kay from Tricome Technologies. He's been growing big since, uh, since before it was, uh, you know, something you could really do the way that people do right now. And uh, he works as a consultant for uh, people who are looking to go big and grow in these massive, uh, unprecedented scale that they have going on here, particularly uh, he's also an expert on concentrates as well. He was on Bobby's dab panel yesterday. Um, very cutting edge. Uh, very, he's got a very astute understanding of not only the cannabis plant and a love for the plant, but also how to reproduce it uh, in, on a large scale without compromising quality and the integrity of the actual product that you produce or the medicine. So thank you, Kay from Tricom. <laughs> So, introductions aside, uh, we'd like to get right into cultivation. Um, I guess we'll start uh, right here with Philip, and we want to talk about um, germination of seeds. What's, what's your preferred method uh, to germinate a seed uh, to start, let's say, for a mother plant that you might be interested in, in growing out? Um, uh, I've done several methods throughout the so, years, but... Um at this point, what I really prefer to do is take a seed, put it in pH-balanced cocoa with very little nutrient, um, put it under the lights, and let it germinate from that point. Um, not a whole lot of, of fuss um, really needs to be put into it. Um, I've germinated things in paper towels for, before and, you know, soaking seeds, um, and I just tend to have a lot better success with you know, good, healthy, fresh seed just by putting it in a medium and letting it go from that point. So. All right, Don, Aaron, do you guys have any preferred methods for seed germination? 
Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> we put them in a glass of water, and then within 24 hours, they should soak and sink, and then we put them in a paper towel for another maybe 12 hours or so and get the root. Root usually gets a little bit of friction against it with the paper towel that's damp, so it makes the root a little bit stronger and looks a little bit hairy when you pull it out. So then, yeah, pretty straightforward. So after you see the root, you put it into the medium that you're, uh, yep. medium that you're going to grow. Exactly. Aaron, do you have a preferred? Um, yeah, I, I like to do uh, the soak it into a shot glass of water, um, tap them down on, like four hours later so they, so they sink. Usually if they float most of the time after you try tapping them, they're no good. Um, then I wait for them to crack and then the paper towel method and drain off as much water off the paper towel. And don't forget to keep the tape, paper towel moist because I'm sure we've all let the paper towel dry once or twice before. Yeah, roots cannot dry out, so you have to keep them very moist, right? Yes. All right. And uh, Scott, uh, can you tell us what, what are some of the mistakes that you see people make during the vegetative stage, in the early stage of growth, before you're flowering and you're just growing your plants out? Um, the, I guess the biggest ones are just keeping the plants too wet. Uh, keep the medium too cold, uh, environment too cold. Uh, vegetative plants typically like to have a you know t touch warmer, touch more humidity. Um, yeah, you know. It also seems to me that a lot of people don't have their light low enough during that stage. They they make their plants grow up to the light, and it ends yeah, up I mean, stretching out. Depending on what light you're using in veg, uh, you know, if you're using T5s or fluorescents or whatever. Um, yeah, you keep those nice and tight and low. Uh, if you're using metal halide or, you know, something else, there's typically, you know, a little bit of gap that you're going to have there. Okay. Uh, DJ, what do you recommend during the vegetative stage for people uh, nutrient-wise and, and watering-wise during that period? Right. Well, one of the mistakes that I see people make is over-fertilizing, um, over-watering as well. Uh, so that's something to be on the lookout for. Um, my particular strains, I just don't use the fertilizers much, so uh, that's what they're accustomed to. Um, but they can uh, hit a state of newt lock very uh, quickly, and once that happens, you can't pull them out of it. Your production will be down, your quality will be down, and I've had to scrap whole R&D projects over... Um, over fertilizing and newt lock. So that's what I'd, I'd avoid is the overs, just, just go light. And Kay, uh, maybe you know uh, some mistakes that people make during that stage as well? Well, it's funny because the common denominator here is overfeeding, overwatering. And I've run across huge, huge scale facilities that run very inefficiently, meaning that they don't have the labor to actually water every two days, every three days or something like that. So the propensity is to go with a, a, a more dense, uh, soil media, less per, less per light, all that kind of stuff. So it stays wet longer, so you don't have to. It saves you labor. And, and this is just uh, inconducive to large-scale cultivation. You, you, they have to be able to draw moisture in. I, I went into one facility, and it was, there was marijuana plants that were actually yellow. And I had to explain to the owners that there is no banana flavor or there is no yellow marijuana plant, that these are actually nutrient deficiencies and stuff. And it took a while to get to the bottom of it, but I realized that these people were watering these plants four times in an eight-week cycle, every two weeks. And it was like the tail wagging the dog. Why are you doing this? Because management is not giving us the tools to, to adequately water, to save 
uh, labor to, to produce the stuff efficiently. So in the end, you end up doing a uh, thicker soil composition. So that's one way to combat over overwatering and overfeeding is a lighter soil composition. A lighter soil composition? Yeah, add more perlite, add a little bit more cocoa or something like that just to break it up. You know, not, not, don't, don't purposely blend your soil to hold water longer, you know? Because the capillary action of the drying out of the, of the medium allows oxygen to go to those roots, which is the nutrient delivery. Okay. Um, now, Philip, in, in large-scale cultivation facilities, what, what are the preferred uh, nutrients that people use, and how, how are they feeding them? Are they hand-watering? Are they automated? Um, in my facility, um, in our flower, we, our veg facility is run in four-inch rockle blocks, all on drip irrigation. Um, with pretty frequent injections of salt-based nutrient and lots of organic input as well. Um, from that point, they will be transferred onto uh, core slabs, um, which are about two and a half to three foot long block of compressed coconut fiber, which is what you see in very large-scale tomato and uh, other vegetable-type facilities. Um, we take the four-inch blocks at the point where they're rooted, set them on the, the, the core, um, put those into, put drip on those, um, and our drip is run back to a nutrient injection system that we can real-time monitor 24 hours a day. Um, and that gives them a constant injection of good salt-based nutrient. And then we periodically throughout the day come through and use um, various organic types as well. All right. Um, Don, um, tell us the difference. I mean, you've grown marijuana that's won the Cannabis Cup. What, what makes it different? What do you do differently than the average person? Uh, where does it begin? Well, in Amsterdam, I think where it begins is we actually had gardens in Amsterdam. <laughs> and a lot of these other people that are entering, they don't have gardens in Amsterdam. So it's a different situation. So that's different. But... Uh, I mean, we've won, we've won cups with hydro. You know, the Martian, our first cup, that was hydro. It wasn't even dried completely. It, you know, it was flushed really well, and it was really great. But, you know, soil is our preferred me method, organic. I mean, that's what we grow our head stash in. And you hand feed? I mean, yeah, as much as you can. I mean, if you have a small enough situation, you can hand feed. But if you're doing a big facility, it's always best to have it a little bit automated. I don't know about automating the feeding and everything so much, but, you know, the watering, yeah. Okay. Aaron, can you talk a little bit about the transition period between vegetative and flowering and uh, sort of what are, what are the nu nutritional uh, needs of the plant at that time? Yeah, a lot of people, uh, a common mistake is when they put their plants into flower, they go directly into uh, a flowering feed schedule, which is not necessarily, you don't necessarily need to do that because your plant is still growing for two to three weeks past the day you switch your lights. So you, you could keep feeding them that, that bit of nitrogen, building that up, and then three weeks later, then you go into your full flower nutrients and start pumping them up hard. Uh, into a higher PPM or into a higher EC. Um, so because the plant is still growing 
still stretching during that initial two-week period when you induce flowering by switching the light cycle to 12 hours on and 12 hours off. Yes, or 13 hours off. Right. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk to DJ. 11 hours on. We'll talk to DJ like about that. these guys will say. Um, and Scott, also, do you know, what do you guys do at River Rock for that period between vegging and flowering once you've switched the light cycle? Um, in, the, uh, in the indoors, um, basically the plants, uh, you know, they go through a different new, uh, new tea that we give them. Uh, the transplants typically ha- uh, take place during that time. Um, most of the indoor plants at River Rock end up in uh, 15 to 17 gallon, um, you know, pots, but everything outdoor ends up in like a 40 to 60 gallon. And are there, uh, you guys have a big greenhouse uh, there in the facility. Is there anything unique about greenhouse growing that people should know uh, beforehand? Um, you know, everything's on a bigger scale. I, I brought Kenny in uh, this week just so he could see the, you know, some of the frustrations that we have sometimes as a large-scale grower, uh, just getting the message across about cleanliness and, and, and you know, having a regiment and having a set schedule and, and, and plants being mapped out on, um, you know, on... Uh, your iPhone apps, or at least on paper, so you know exactly if there's a problem going on, what quadrant you need to look in, what plant you need to look in. Um, you know, all the plants in Colorado are ultimately tracked by patient and by mitts, so it'd be, you know, relatively easy to incorporate, um, you know, a simple iPhone app that would, you know, basically tell you exactly where in the greenhouse, what quadrant, what day that plant's on, yada, yada, without having to... Uh, you know, keep it on paper. Cool. Um, question for DJ. We, we, uh, Aaron mentioned a little bit about that 13-11 cycle. It's a unique sort of thing that you've been speaking about. Can you just uh, describe that to people? Sure. And what we're talking about here is genotype and phenotype. Uh, genotype is a given. It's the genetic makeup. There's really nothing we can do about that other than breeding, uh, playing around with it. Now, phenotype... Uh, is in regard to the expression that that genotype makes in its environment. So the environment can coax various phenotypic traits. And one of the simplest is, I know most people are familiar in their bud cycle with uh, uh, 1212, and my suggestion is to switch to 11 on, 13 off. And what will happen, you will see phenotypic expressions that you will not see um, with the 1212. It saves a little energy. It actually ups production because plants take in nutrient during the day. And the plant's main form of nutrient is light. You have to remember that. Everything else is a supplement to help it uh, metabolize that light and chlorophyll. Um, So uh, you actually, uh, they take in the nutrient during the day, they put it into fiber during the night cycle. So by giving it a little longer night cycle, you can actually increase production. But the main thing that really interests me is this uh, phenotypic expressions that you do not see from a 12-12. And my recommendation is just uh, try it and and see what happens. Ken, uh, Kay? Yeah, I want to address the greenhouse issue. First, I want to thank Scott, River Rock, and Rare Dankness for my tour, my lovely lunch in the greenhouses. It was magnificent. It was just a 
dream come true. It was fantastic. But getting back to the greenhouse issue, what's the plus, the minuses? It's environmental control and the cost of environmental control. You've got the lowest cost of production with the greenhouse, you know, up to 50 cents a gram. In Israel, we produce cannabis between 250 pounds to 350 pounds a month for 50 cents a gram in very high quality. You don't have to com compromise quality. And you're saying, you know, what's the difference? I mean, either way, indoor, outdoor, it's the attention to detail. Having a tech touch that plant, put his finger in the soil, the medium, whatever. You know, not just treating it like a commodity, but actually giving every plant that tender, loving care that it deserves. And it can be done in an industrial scale. You were talking about dose meters and things. Typically in the industry, under 80,000 feet, it's hand water, anything over 80,000 feet. And this is in the, the, the food production industry, that it, that it goes dose meters, everything else. Because at that point, it's a different skill set. You've got to check that machinery every day to make sure it's not underfeeding, overfeeding, or messing up your pH or any of that kind of stuff. As well as drippers clogging and everything else, double, triple redundancy, uh, you know, having, you know, purified, filtered water coming into the dose meters, everything else. So... And, and what are some things that you've seen, uh, ways that people can make those larger gardens more efficient uh, on that larger scale? The first thing I can encourage you to do is go to uh, Howling uh, Nurseries and look at their website. And look, how, look how efficient this facility is. Look how clean it is and how they, they, they produce $50 million, make $50, green, $50 million greenhouses and pay for them selling a product for $4 a pound, be it a tomato. They're at the height of efficiency. What's, what's the spelling on that? H-O-U-W-E-L-I-N-G. Howling, Howling Nurseries. They're tomato Howling producers out of Canada, Camarilla, California, and Los Angeles, I think, Ontario. The, the, the gentleman, the, the owner of the company is just a, an amazing man. Took me on a tour and just, just, just opened my eyes. That's my mentor. That's who I look to for large-scale cultivation. I mean, the, the man is making hundreds of millions of dollars selling a product at $4 a pound and not compromising quality at all. Excellent. Um, Philip, uh, can you maybe discuss a little bit about uh, ways that you can grow multiple strains under the same you know, lighting configuration? Because I know you have over 240 different strains growing at Gaia, and, um, and they're all, you know, together in, in the same big rooms and stuff. So what are some ways that people can uh, do that if more efficiently? Uh, the way we do it is we break our rooms into smaller, easier controlled rooms. Um, and the plants that we flower in that rooms tend to not only have very similar flowering times, but they also tend to feed very similarly. Um, but I also have the ability to turn particular valves on in certain sections to change feed cycles. Um, we can real-time monitor the pH, um, the EC, the actual water content of the core slabs. Um, but we also have um, redundancy. You know, we have guys walking around collecting water, um, checking meters, making sure that that type of stuff is still um, on point, giving us the results that we're after. Um, you know, I, I come from large-scale horticulture. Um, I grew up in... Um, uh, 450,000 square feet of commercial production. It's really the only thing I've ever done. Um, I've also grown cannabis on the side. So it's, um, it was a bit easier for me to convert growing into these large buildings um, and into greenhouses in the industry um, than it would had I maybe just grown in a closet or whatever. So. And do you guys use any sort of trellising systems at Gaia? Um, we do, yeah. Um, we use standard... Um, trellis netting um, that's been in flower production forever, basically. Um, but we use it for two different reasons. Um, 
we do it in a couple different layers. The first layer that we put down, we use mainly to give us a better structure on the plants um, through the first couple of, for the first week or so of flower. Uh, we kind of bend and manipulate the plants a bit to where we get a branch um, with several nodes on it into every square. Um, once I get that main scaffolding of the plants, I know it's about time to flip the plants. Um, so we do, uh, then they'll you know, usually triple, quadruple in height from that point. Um, and at that phase, we have nets that are above them in two different sections to, um, just mainly for support, to keep the plants from falling over and to uh, just help support them. So. All right, I also noticed that you're switching over a lot of your lighting in your rooms to these uh, Philips, uh, what are they, they're like double-ended? Uh, double-ended, they're EPAPI. Plasma, EPAPILON. Um, uh, you know, Philips invented the HID light, you know, years ago, 50 years ago, whatever it was. Um, a lot of other lighting companies have put a lot of energy and funds into other lighting technologies, whether that be LED or, you know, different types of fluorescence, plasma, whatever. Um, but Philips concentrated more on producing a much better light that is really tuned for plant production. Um, they've been in large-scale agriculture forever. And that's the thing about... Um, Cannabis cultivation and traditional horticulture is everything that is in cannabis cultivation comes from technology that's been in traditional horticulture forever. It's just been, you know, tweaked. You know, fertilizers have been tweaked specifically for the plants. Um, but, you know, from the lights to the irrigation to everything, it all existed before. And it's all, you know, really the way to do it. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt, but I want to tell you guys about BC Northern Lights. I know you've heard it all before, but the important thing is that these guys make the best grow boxes in the business. They are machine manufactured in Canada. They're put together uh, with the sole intention of cannabis cultivation in mind. Uh, the systems are incredible. There's one for every use uh, from the roommate to the room bloom box to the producer, and you can yield free weed year round. You can have five harvests maybe even six harvests a year using these machines. Uh, give them a call at 888-236-1266 or check them out at bcnorthernlights.com. They are giving away a roommate. We still have that, uh, that promotion going on right now, so follow them on Twitter and follow us on Facebook at Freeweed. And check out BC Northern Lights, man. They're, they're our long-term sponsors. They were at the Cannabis Cup. Uh, they said they did pretty good with the machines. And everything's automated. Everything is... Uh, touch screens it's all the most advanced technology that you can have in cultivation and they're good people to boot with great customer service so check them out at bcnorthernlights.com and uh, Don uh, I notice one of the mistakes that people make a lot is that they don't flush their plants and this is a big thing uh, people think, oh, it's organic, I don't have to flush. Or what happens is the harvest time just sneaks up on them. Um, what, are, uh, you know, what is flushing and what are ways that people can anticipate that and act accordingly? Well, I mean, we pretty much think you have to flush your plants at least two weeks if it's something that you want to actually consume. <clears throat> Most people, or a lot of people, will feed their plants all the way to the end because they're going to get more crystal production or they think they're going to get more weight 
you know, I mean, in the end of the day, if you're growing organic, you definitely need a flush. There's no illusion that just because it's a organic, you don't need a flush. And we would even suggest flushing a little bit longer. You know, I mean, if you can go even two and a half weeks, you know, that's good. As long as the plant was healthy and fed properly going in, it can, you know, it can finish out two, two and a half weeks. It'll turn nice, beautiful colors. It's really nice for photos when all the, you know, all the chlorophyll is gone until the very end, you know, and it turns all yellow and purple and it's like so, autumn. So we're talking about just basically using plain water instead of nutrient solution. Just pH water. None of the clear eggs or flush stuff or I don't even know if they still make that stuff, but just water, pH water. Mm -hmm. All right. And, and Aaron, what are the benefits of flushing to the end user? No harshness on the throat, uh, flush out any chemicals or any nutrients that are left over, any salts that are left over out of the plant. It, I think it boils down to taste and the way uh, if you roll joints, uh, this, this, for instance, if you roll joints and the ash burns black and you have to light your joint two or three times, most of the time that those flowers that you're smoking haven't been flushed properly a proper flush is a white ash in the joint you you could think it goes out but it actually is still lit and then you take it off of it, it's good it's all about and it, it goes down to taste i mean i think it, it goes down to taste you know and smoothness of this of the smoke so the proper you know the longer you flush the longer you can flush the better your your final product will be and uh yeah it's, it's just loving your plants give them as much love as you can and, and then they'll give you back. So if you flush them, you'll get some good tasting flowers. Cup winning flowers too. Scott, uh, any, any tips on flushing? Uh, in hydro, I think the biggest, uh, biggest mistake a lot of people make is uh, they immediately go to plain water, um, you know, like three weeks out and it shock the plant, you know, lock everything up. Um, it's always better. Uh, and at least hydro or, or, or uh, any type of arrow set up uh, to work the PPMs down from like a specific date. So gradually yeah. decrease the amount of food that the plants are... Yeah, gradually bring the PPMs down. Um, you know, make sure the pH isn't swinging one way or the other. Uh, you know, and then those last, uh, you know, 10 days, really, you make sure all the water that's going in is not being recirculated it's water in water out water in water out um and and typically those last couple of uh you know last four or five waterings there will be absolutely no ppms left in in the medium um yeah and it's it's you know it's in dirt uh you know there's different different theories on flushing dirt you know in the living soil um you know if you flush out and you flood your soil you have a big chance of uh of killing a lot of you know a lot of good stuff that's living in the soil so um it ultimately in soil it, it's what you're feeding the plant determines how much water you really need plain water at least you need to run through it in the end all right and dj can you talk a little bit about curing and the importance of that and and what a true connoisseur cure is sure and and curing is half the game it really is uh production is one end of it curing is the other um, there's a lot of information in the tobacco industry uh, regarding this, and the trick is to release that moisture slowly. 
but not so slowly that you encourage mold. Um, and it's just finding that, that uh, happy place. Now, um, back in the day, one of the things I, I used to use a lot was brown paper bags in the process. After the buds came off, they went in brown paper bags. But I've been told uh, a while ago now that that inspires aspergillus mold. And what I found as an alternative are the mesh-woven hanging bags, like laundry bags. Those work great. And just paying attention to those buds. We know that what we're looking for when they go in the jar is when you bend that bud, the stem in the middle snaps. You hear the snap, you feel it, then they're ready to go into the jar. When they go into the jar, I check them regularly. Four hours after I put them in the jar, I'll check. If that moisture's coming out again and they're feeling uh, damp, then they'll need to come out again. If they're maintaining that level of dryness, the stem is still cracking, I can leave them in the jar. Um, checking it regularly at first, you're mainly trying to prevent mold and uh, releasing that moisture slowly. Um, once it gets to a certain point, depending on, on what environment you're in, if you're in a very humid environment, of course, it's going to take a little longer. Um, whereas in a dry environment, these things can go fairly quickly. Um, so just paying attention to that bud and getting it to the uh, point we like. Uh, I, I'll say on a side note here that my, my favorite bud right now that I'm smoking is cured for three years in glass. And when it's done properly, the chlorophyll starts breaking down, the calyxes go golden, the trichome change color, even shape a little bit. They get sort of crystalline patterns on them. And that taste of chlorophyll is just gone. It's very, very smooth smoke when it's been cured for that long. Um, I like to use large jars initially um, until I get them to the point I like. Then I'll go and put, I'll take that large jar and transfer it to a bunch of jelly jars. And then that way I have things that I can take with me and, and travel with um, and so on. Okay. I'd like to address the uh, flushing issue. The purpose of flushing is to get rid of uh, residual parts per million, as they said, but the parts per million of unwanted nutrients and things. If they don't burn out, you don't want them present. Things like, you know, organic materials like, you know, uh, chicken manure and things like that. They burn real hot. They last a long time. You need to get rid of them. So uh, the purpose of flushing is, is to get rid of excessive nutrients. Uh, the number one game is to not give it too much in the beginning. So why don't you track, you've got to keep records in these things. You've got to track what goes in, but also that runoff water. That runoff water tells you everything that's going on inside that pot. You know, if you put it in a 6.2, 800 ppm, and it comes out at a, a 5.2 and a 1500, obviously you know you've got some serious, serious buildup that's going to cause lockout, which is going to metastasize as nutrient deficiency. It's not actually deficiency. It's actually bonding in your nutrient. It's become unavailable. So it's become of excess that's actually caused the deficiency. And in that, keeping records and things like that, Scott and I had a conversation the other day that I don't think some in Colorado realize that this is legal now, that, 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 that you're a, a taxpayer, that you can call the Department of Agriculture, that you can call a university base. You, you can do once a week plant sap analysis, ash analysis. You can do many things to figure out exactly what this plant wants, exactly what, when it wants it, which, which will save your company 
you know, thousands of dollars in, in, in nutrient application from over-fertilization as well as the environmental impact. So it's, it's about efficiency and everything else and the, cost, the true cost of production of this material. And it, it, in the future, the person that has the best quality product for the lowest cost of production is going to win this game. So all the people that are out there screwing around and not really paying attention, maximizing and, 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 and looking at the efficiency of the whole thing. I mean, if you overproduce heat and then you have to get a 75-ton AC unit to, to get rid of that heat, well, you just cost yourself $30,000 in profit because you overworked that machine. There's other methods of keeping that. Uh, I heard of a facility in Arizona that is now currently sitting at 100 degrees Fahrenheit and 100 degrees uh, uh, humidity because they didn't want to do a fresh air makeup. They didn't want to prop, put a proper HVAC system in there. And uh, the, the, the worst marijuana review I ever read was somebody said that the, 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 the marijuana tasted like a wet leather jacket that was made from a bull's testicles. And that's, what's gonna, and that's what happens to you if you don't adhere to the basic fundamentals of these things. You know, they think they can make sealed systems. They don't understand ethylene buildup that prematurely ripens one crop in another. So if you want to go big, you must, must adhere to the basic fundamentals and the foundation of the whole thing, or the whole thing will crumble. All right, and on that note, uh, Phil, you guys have quite a processing facility at Gaia Plant-Based Medicine. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you know marijuana is processed like that on a large scale from drying uh, to curing to storage um at our facility um the plants are harvested in place um we will take the top third of the plant um, or the top third of most of the branches of the plant um, hand trim all of those wet um, hang those to dry very slowly um you know up to two weeks in that first process and then it gets bucketed up and, you know, moved from that point. Um, the middle third of the plant um, basically just gets big leafed and um, run through a mechanical processing machine, which basically trims off the majority of the leaf. Um, and it, you know, puts out, you know, a, you know, a trimmed product. From that point, um, the bottom third of the plant is basically just removed after the big leaves have come off. Um, that is then set aside, and depending on what type of processing it's going to go to from that point, um, we will either dry it or freeze it um, for processing of ancillary products from hash to other things. So, and when you say freeze it, you guys have an interesting thing that you do where you fresh freeze the plant uh, material and then use it to make live resin. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Um, you know, I'm not a, not the extraction guys, but I, uh, I do grow their plant material, listen to them talk. Um, but what we do, um, is we take fresh frozen plant material, um, whole plant, you know, from the very top highest end buds to the, um, you know, the bottom stuff that we normally make hash out of anyway. We basically big leaf it, strip it from the stems and flash freeze it, um, as instantly as possible. Um, and from that point, they, um, have particular methods where they, they make BHO out of it, you know, hash oil. Um, and from that point, they, you know, can whip it into wax or use vacuum ovens to turn it into a, a different type product. Um, it's not quite shatter. You know, it's got a little bit of a, a snap to it. But it, it, in my opinion, it really captures the essence and the beauty of the plant. It, um, you know, as you dry the product, you get... Um, you know, there's some, some chemical changes that go on. You know, the plant smells different. It tastes different um, than it does when it um, is fresh. 
Um, and the terpenes are a little bit different. It affects you a little different. So. Okay. Yeah, I think in the future, it's an interesting thing that the, the, the mathematical figures are going to come out to the uh, value of the biomass per square foot. So, so we, very few industries do we pick unripe fruit. And it seems in this industry, cut it down, hang it upside, do what we do. Uh, Philip just mentioned that he's taking the ripe fruit off and then he uses the B and C grade. In the future, I believe that that stuff will go back into the, curing, or the, 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 the flowering chamber and that, that C grade will become B grade. And you'll get more essential oils and everything else off the production off that one plant per square foot rather than cutting it down and replacing it with a new one. So I think in the future, people will just cut the fruit as it ripens, lower the light, put that back under the light because the biomass you're going to get per square foot per dollar, that's where it's going to equate. So harvest top down over time. Absolutely, absolutely. Because the lower snuff's not getting light. So you ch chop off that ripe fruit on the top, and then you can continue to second and third crop it even. All right, uh, DJ, can you take us through a little bit of what uh, a basic breeding project would entail, um, maybe using the blueberry as an example, and uh, let people know how they can maybe stabilize something? Because blueberry has Thai genetics in it, right? Correct. And, it, and, and that can tend to have some hermaphroditic qualities and such, right? Sure. Um, hermaphrodites are pretty easy to deal with. It's about two generations of very strict intolerance. Um, but just as a side note, all of the great sativa of yore was all hermaphrodite and was all somewhat seeded. All of the great hash that came from field runs were seeded um, field runs. I personally prefer the effect of seeded herb to non-seeded herb or sensimia, uh, just because it seems to have a broader uh, effect on me. It's subtle, but not much difference. Um, so in a breed project, this kind of goes hand in hand with also if you're, if you're buying a pack of seeds, all right? What you're searching for is that one phenotype that you really enjoy. So we sprout the seeds, we grow them into veg. When they're big enough, what, eighth, ninth node, take a clone off of everybody, uh, have that clone separately growing elsewhere, take the plants that you have taken the clone off of and bud those out to see um, how they're going to finish. You can pull your males out then. Um, if you're doing breed work, of course, you're going to want to keep a male. Um, and right now, the, the simplest rule of thumb is, is basically just uh, consuming the male, smoking him. I like to be at a baseline state um, when I do that. I know Lawrence Ringo used to recommend uh, he would give the women in his community the males to smoke as they were able to ascertain its effects and, and subtle qualities. If he's, you know, getting you high, he's probably going to carry that on to his progeny. So anyhow, you have all these clones um, in veg while you butt out the plants. Um, realistically, uh, for me, in terms of judging herb, I do it almost entirely by the effect of the finished product. Everything else is an incidental. It's, it's secondary. It's flavor. It's structure, uh, growth rate, all types of things. Um, but how does it make me feel when all is said and done? Now, that's the one then, say, you know, if I'm sprouting a 10-pack of seeds, I get five females, and I pick my one or two females that I really like, well, I can go back to those marked uh, clones, make sure you mark your clones, and you can identify which plant it came from. That mistake happens now and again. Um, so keeping good notes is also very important. Um, 
And this, this carries over. It's not just for breeding. It's for, again, if you're looking for that special phenotype, it's, it's pretty much the same thing. Now, one little caveat, just so you know, in my opinion, there is no way to really judge the male's pollen until I make seeds with it, harvest them, uh, cure them, and sprout them, and grow them out. There really is no shortcut for that. So even though the plant may be giving me signs and symbols that it's something I desire, I can't determine that until I see uh, what happens. So this is a long process. This takes several crops, and you want to have your veg space, which T5 lights work fine for in the veg space for keeping things going, um, and then sampling your product and seeing what it is that you desire and keeping that mother plant going as long as possible. I have uh, my flow right now is 24 years old. She was sprouted in uh, January of 1990. It's not the same plant. Um, I rejuvenate outdoors, which is, I throw this in. Um, I have my mothers that I work all year. They get tired. They get root-bound. Come April, I like to put them outside. And they kind of stunt because they've been in T5s, and the sun hits them, and they'll kind of curl up a little bit. But then they come out of it. And just like watching, you know, when you sprout a seed, you see the single leaflet, then the three, and then the five, and then the seven. Well, you'll see the same thing on this rejuvenating plant. And I'll actually get it back to nine leaflets or whatever that strain is. The stem then is very um, supple and succulent and thick, and all of the disease seems to be gone. It, it just rejuvenates them, and they seem to have a memory of it, too. Uh, they, the ones that do get rejuvenated outdoors tend to hold their health longer through the year. So then, come late July, August, I take a clone off that plant when everything is uh, fully uh, growing along, and that will be my mother for next year, so that's how I keep those going. But, yeah, outdoor rejuvenation is definitely... If I can just cut in for just a second. We have another seminar that's about to begin at 3.30. It's the Veterans in Pot Seminar, and that's in forum room number one. So I didn't, don't mean to interrupt. No, actually, I do mean to interrupt. So that's where the, uh, the seminar is. So if you are here for the Veterans in Seminar, it's back there. Okay? Sorry to interrupt, Dan. No worries. Uh, we talked a little bit about cloning, and I was wondering, maybe, Scott, uh, I know you guys take a lot of clones at River Rock. Um, what are... What are What's the keys to successfully rooting a clone, which is basically taking a piece of a vegetating plant, we call that a mother plant, and inducing that cut piece to produce roots and be a plant of its own, an identical copy? Uh, nowadays, it's just cleanliness, you know. Um, have your routine, make sure things don't get mislabeled, uh, make sure the guys, you know, taking the clones are wearing gloves. But, I mean, ever since they invented the... Uh, Turbo cloner, you know, um, yeah, pretty much anybody can root a clone. They're, so you guys use uh, like an aeroponic cloning system? Yeah. I mean, I still like to, to root stuff in rock wool every once in a while. But, I mean, ev everybody's going to these uh, turbo cloners just because of the success rate. And if you're keeping them clean, um, you know, there's little chance of disease and stuff like that. Uh, it's just the second you let them go get dirty, uh, every, everything dies. Yeah, and Philip, you had some interesting tips that you had mentioned to me a few months back about cloning and, and um, the light and the humidity that, that you 
give to plants when they're cloning? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I have a room that's actually designed for, um, for setting roots on plants. It's a propagation room. Um, in greenhouse culture, um, the way it would be done is, you know, you, you, you put your cuttings in rock wool, you sit them under a mist table, um, you know, it has sensors, all that. It turns on, it waters the plants. Um, what I have done is build a room um, with continuously high humidity, um, a bit warmer temperature, um, and extremely low light. Um, I, I'm not trying to push the plants for actual growth at this point. Um, I'm just really trying to get them to set root. Um, so we do, we keep the humidity up around 80%. Um, the room is about 75 degrees. We do not use domes um, uh, because we don't need to because I've basically created a very large dome out of this one room. So uh, a lot of times people that use the humidity domes, when they take the dome off, the clones will all sort of wilt for sure. a little while. and then So you avoid that by basically raising the humidity in the whole room in which you're doing the propagation. Um, and, and I also um, have the ability to sterilize the entire environment this way with my HVAC system. Um, by sterilizing the air, um, the plants um, are in a much cleaner environment. Um, you know, Rockwell comes to me as an inert, sterile, um, pH neutral medium. Um, I can take it at that point and really set it and steer it exactly how I want. Um, and at this phase, we don't use a lot of nutrient, um, very, very low nutrient, um, nutrient base um, with a bit more hormones. And... Um, that's really it as far as what we use to get the plants to root. And, and what are some of your favorite regions? I know you've done a lot of traveling in collecting uh, cannabis genetics, land races, and, and um, strains from their place of origin. What are some of your favorite places to collect genetics from? Um, I really love um, Central Asian genetics. Um, and, and not just plants, but um, dogs, horses, everything from that part of the world. Um, you know, they're throughout history have been some of the biggest xenophobes, you know, on the planet. They don't like outsiders. They, um, um, so they've had, you know, fairly pure genetics by not letting a lot of um, things come in there. Um, uh, what I like about them is they're, they're pretty predictable. You know, they've been inbred for, you know, years, no telling how long. Um, and um, there's a lot of predictability to them. Um, but they also tend to kind of run the gamut um, when you make hybrids with them. They're... Um, there's a lot of great plants in them. Um, I personally uh, prefer to smoke sativas, um, but as a grower, I, uh, I really love um, Afghan hybrids. Um, uh, but as a smoker, I tend to love the more um, exotic stuff from, you know, equator. Um, like African and Colombian and things most like that. Most definitely, yeah. At this point, I'm working um, a couple Colombian lines, um, some stuff from Senegal. Um, I actually... Um, entered some stuff, uh, a plant from Jamaica this year into the cup. Um, you know, um, we really love that stuff. What I love is, you know, my main goal in collecting seed has been to preserve the lines as much as possible. Um, I've always taken all the seed, um, open pollinated it, um, to keep that line as open, um, and pure as possible. Um, that way when I come to look back at it, um, I can dig deeper and find the things that I'm really looking for. Um, so yeah. All right. Uh, Don, uh, why don't you uh, tell us, uh, if someone out here wants to buy a 10-pack of some DNA seeds 
and grow it out and have something on their shelf uh, that's connoisseur quality, what, what are the key steps that they can take to achieve that? Like Scott was saying, have a clean situation along with Phil as well. Making sure your setup is properly clean. There's no chance of, you know, contaminants. And then, like you said, start with good genetics, you know. And if, uh, even if you have bag seed, you know, Mexican bag seed weed, you can grow it really good and make some really good pot. It might not be kosher kush or something ridiculous, but it can be really good, strong pot, and you can, you can learn from that. So, it, it, you know, as long as you have the love for the plant and you actually just trial and error and keep, you know, as things, mistakes happen, you adjust and adjust. I would start with the, the less expensive, expensive genetics first and, you know, work on those and then work up to the a little bit more connoisseur grade. It's more expensive, you know. Try on the cheap shit and then, you know, work up to it. All right. Uh, Aaron, what about you? What do you think? Uh, what's your advice to uh, the closet grower, the one light grower, someone who just wants a connoisseur quality DNA, you know, jar? Just take your time with the plant uh, and follow, like, you know, we all, I think the common denominator, just like we've all been saying here, is overwatering and over-fertilizing your plant. Um, start off with good genetics. Uh, this guy makes some good genetics. I'm honored to sit next to DJ, who also makes some fine genetics. Ken, I mean, it's uh, just take your time with the plant. Don't overwater your plant. Um, don't try to stress your plant out. Don't go into the room when it's dark and show your friends, oh, check out my plant. Uh, buy some Method 7 sunglasses so you can see your plant in real color because if you're using a high-pressure sodium light, you everything is yellow in the room. If you've ever tried taking a picture in yellow light, it's horrible. Um, the glasses work great. It's a good way to look at your plant and also see deficiencies and or bug problems if you have them. But start with a clean environment. That's why you start with seeds because then you don't get any of the problems that came with the clone that you received from somebody who received it from someone else. And then all your rooms have powdery mildew or the person who handed you clone never flowered out the clone and doesn't know it's a male and they give it to you. Just... Uh, Pay attention to your plants. Watch your plants. Uh, don't overfeed. Don't overwater. And flush properly. All right, Scott, um, uh, Aaron mentioned a little bit about uh, pest management. Uh, can we talk a little bit about integrated pest management? What do you guys do at River Rock if you recognize, uh, you know, an infestation of some sort rising? Um, you know, the, the biggest thing is just try not to bring any type of foreign plants in. Uh, clones that come from other centers, you, you quarantine them. Um, and in the large facilities, it's, it's fairly difficult to, um, you know, bang into these guys' heads sometimes that you need to do shoe washes. You need to make sure that if you're, you know, in the veg room, you're not going into the flowering room or if you've been in the greenhouse, you don't go anywhere else. Um, but if, you know, something does spring up, uh, first thing is isolation. You get those plants out of there. You get them somewhere where they're not going to affect the rest of it. Uh, typically, you know, nowadays, 
we have typically enough backup plants. You just cut them down, you know, cut them down, destroy them, don't risk, you know, infecting anything else. Um, but we're fairly required by law with, uh, you know, what chemicals, what pesticides, everything that we can use. Uh, River Rock really prides themselves uh, for being organic as possible. So um, lately, man, you know, they love that name. I think everybody uses name in some form or fashion. Kenny made a, a, a good point the other day. We walked into the greenhouse, and he was like, holy crap, it doesn't smell like weed in here. It smells like neem. <laughs> so, I mean, sometimes, you know, like get, getting ready for the, you know, onset of, uh, of, you know, summer coming and all that, you just got to prep up. Uh, and, Phil, uh, you guys have an IPM program at Gaia as well? Yeah, we, uh, we have more or less a true integrated pest management system. Um, <clears throat> uh, whenever I took the building over um, that I'm in now, um, there was a grow there. It wasn't a very, the building was very large, but there wasn't very much space dedicated to growing. Um, and they had, you know, infestation of bugs, like, you know, 90% of the operations here in the state. Um, they had very poor spring and um, chemical treatment practices. Um, the, the bugs that they had, mainly the spider mites, uh, were immune to anything and everything that you could think of to throw at them. Um, so the stuff didn't work. Um, so I completely gave the stuff up and quit spraying it. Um, it was rough at first. Um, we started using um, various botanicals a little bit, and I still use um, some rosemary oils and lemongrass oil, um, things like that, going from the... Um, vegetative rooms into the flower rooms, but from the point where the plants go into flower, they never get sprayed with anything ever um, for the rest of their lives. Um, but what we do is um, once a week we get in um, 100,000 to 150,000 beneficial insects, um, mainly um, beneficial mites. Um, so we take these mites, um, spread them throughout the grow, um, uh, the main mite that we get, it really concentrates on eating any type of egg that may be there. It goes to the eggs. It eats those eggs. Um, as it's eating the eggs, it lays its eggs in the path. Um, and as it gets bigger, we'll actually move on to eating the adults. Um, but the important thing it does, and the important thing no matter what your um, pest control practices are, um, especially with spider mites, are to try to break that life cycle. Um, you know, spider mites have a very fast life cycle and the ability to reproduce exponentially. Um, and quite often, you'll spray plants a time or two. Um, you'll think you've got them. Um, when you actually don't, what will happen is you've built up a bit of a, an immunity in some of the adult females. They'll actually go into a diapause where they'll go down into the medium or hide out under a leaf or whatever. They won't eat anything for weeks on end. They're just sitting there pregnant, waiting for the you know, the environment to get, you know, back to favorable conditions and they will hatch out and grow and wreak havoc. Hey, pardon the interruption, you guys, but uh, I want to let you know about Gorilla Cannabis Seeds. This is a company that will send you 100% discreetly stealth shipping with the best prices, all the seeds you want from the seed banks that you love, all the people you've heard on the show, they have seeds that they sell through Gorilla Seed Bank. It's G-O-R-I-L-L-A 
cannabis-seeds.co.uk. Um, they're going to give you free seeds. They have worldwide delivery. And this is the reason that you need to go Gorilla because they follow up. They've been around for 10 years and they get you what you need when you need it. And that's their secret. And the prices are the best prices you can find. And if you care about uh, the environment, they have eco-friendly stuff that they send. So please do yourself a favor. You want free weed. You don't want to grow bag seed or swag seed. You want the real deal. So for all your seed needs, please check out Gorilla Seed Bank. Now back to the panel. Now, you guys also have companion plants that I noticed, like bean, bean uh, uh, bushes and things. Um, tell people a little bit about what those are able to indicate and why you have those among your cannabis plants. Um, Mites especially have an affinity for beans. They love the things. And they will actually jump off of other plants onto beans. So what I do um, is we grow beans throughout our entire facility. Um, constantly, you know, taking some out, eating beans, you know, whatever. But um, we use them as a flagging plant. Um, if we are to get mites in any particular area, they will hit those beans first, and I'll be able to see, you know, mite damage at that point, and I can concentrate heavier with the doses of uh, beneficials in those particular spots. But we've literally, you know, in a very large facility, managed to wipe out spider mites. For the most part, you know, they're still there. We still see them, you know, but nowhere near the point where they ever give us any problems, um, but literally just, you know, by using bugs. You can build up an immunity to different types of insecticides or whatever, but you will never build up an immunity getting your head bitten off. And that's the key to integrated pest management. It's the word integrated. You're using a number of different methods to attack the problem. He's got beneficial insects. Some people call them predator insects because they only eat other insects rather than eating the plants themselves. It's like a war between the vegetarians and the, the carnivores. And you want the carnivores to win. <laughs> so it's a fun to watch, too. You can actually look up close with a loop or a microscope, and you can see the spider mites are scared and running away, and the predators grab them and bite their heads off and suck out all the juice. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's very satisfying in a lot of ways to see that, uh, especially if you've dealt with, with mites as a problem in the past. And uh, the other things that they use, the beneficial, the, the companion planting, the neem oil, all of these are part of an integrated pest management system. And like Phil said, you know, in an acre of plants inside, it's very difficult to uh, completely destroy the population. But managing that population and being able to beat them, you know, and control them is important. Uh, Mike... Hughes is in the crowd. He's going to take some questions from the audience. If you guys have any questions for our illustrious panel here. Yes, uh, hi, Dan. Raise um, your hand. We only have a few minutes left, so if you have some grow questions. All right, let's start over here. Thanks. I have a question about um, <clears throat> defan, <clears throat> defan leafing. When do you guys do that? <clears throat> and um, have you heard of a new process that where you take fan leaves off about three times during the flowering cycle or, or whatever. I, I don't do that personally, but I've heard about it, and I was curious if you guys have any experience with it. Uh, any thoughts on taking off fan leaves? I mean, yeah. On the, on the heavy indicas like uh, Afghani plants, they have giant you know, fan leaves. And most of the time when they produce those giant fan leaves, 
nothing underneath the fan leaves get any light, period. And if you don't have light penetration, like Kenny was saying, you don't have any buds. So if you can thin out those fat, you know, fan leaves a couple times in, in, in flower, they reproduce themselves. Within 10 days, 7 to 10 days, they're back. And you, it's like you didn't do anything. So we, I mean, I definitely do that with Afghan plants for sure. Yeah, and one other thing, a side note here, uh, a big uh, word in the healing community is juicing those leaves um, and include the stem. Most of the juice is in that leaf stem. And I know in California, people are swearing by it for the healing qualities. It's a lot like wheatgrass with a slight cannabinoid profile. And I'm kind of waiting for somebody, uh, I don't know if anyone's done this yet, to freeze dry uh, the uh, juice from the leaves and put that as a green powder supplement into smoothies and whatnot. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Just just make sure when you decide to juice, use a cold press juicer, something really slow, like a hand crank juicer is the best. Um, and also make sure you wash your, your leaves, your cuttings that you're juicing because just in case you spray anything or there are bugs on them, you don't want it just like you do your vegetables and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, you don't want to juice the, the bad stuff. All right. Um, I've also seen people where they've taken those big fan leaves and just sort of tucked them under a branch. So they're still there, but they're not quite as obtrusive to the lower, uh, lower branches. Yeah, we got a question from Joe. I appreciate you guys being here. Thank you a lot for coming and having this panel. My question is, um, I have an aquaponic system, and I have a bed that has multiple plants in it, all from a different genetics. Um, my question is, everything being equal, all plants looking good, they're growing, they're healthy, only but one that's yellow, doesn't want to do anything like the others. Are there any solutions, ideas as to maybe pH, that one's just pH is not suitable for it? Is, could that be, or could it be something else? Well, I mean, first thing to look at is genetic diversity. I mean, you got a dog, a cat, and a lizard living in the same system, trying to feed them all the same thing and accommodate every spot-on thing. But also look at the soil. Uh, do that, as I said, check the runoff. See if you've got any kind of buildup or any kind of lockout or anything like funny. Any anomalies, check the runoff on all three of them and see if one produces unusual figures. Uh -huh. oh, it's okay. one bed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and aquaponics is where you're using fish as, uh, in the reservoir as a fertilizer, and the fish feed the plants, and hopefully the plants are in turn feeding the fish. Uh, absolutely. When you see one plant with an anomaly like that, usually it's best to just start foliar feeding it because it's not getting enough nutrient from the root base, and you can kind of make up for that a little bit. It'll eat through the bottoms of the roots as long as you don't cause unnecessary humidity situations. Do it early in the morning so it dries off before the lights go off or sun goes down, indoor, outdoor, whatever you're doing. But yeah, just, you know, yeah, yeah, so, so check that pH runoff. Give that thing, a, you know, a nice light foliar feeding. Bring up, you know, some of the nutrient levels. Take off some of the demands off the roots and it should come back around. And some plants just are runts by birth and either they've been you know shaded out by the other plants and they're f far behind or they just have trouble taking in nutrients and you know um, these guys will all tell you as breeders um, one of the toughest things they have to do but one of the things they do all the time is kill plants <laughs> you know the that's undesirable not, ones that's the fun part bro making space i don't have the luxury of 
like River Rock and Red Ankness and these guys where they have such giant facilities. So when it gets to the point where we could actually start killing shit, that's a good day. <laughs> All right, Mike. All right, it's a violent panel, killing spider mites, killing plants. Quoting Ice Cube, too. Quoting it's a, a good motherfucking day. plant killer. All right. Um, ben here has a question about increasing the size of his buds. All right. Okay. Um, my question is, let me get this right. Um, is there a difference in weight by ripping bottoms off? Or is it just an increase in quality? Like if I were to... Oh, oh, let me start. Let me start over. A friend of mine rips no bottoms off. Gets a pretty good amount of weight. I rip more bottoms off than he does. I might have bigger buds, but he seems to have more weight than I do. Is it really an increase, or is it just uh, a quality increase? Depends on what you're doing. I mean, typically when you're you know pruning that bottom off, you're definitely you know you're definitely going to increase the top because all that. You know, extra energy and food that would typically go to the bottom is, you know, going to the top now. Um, but what you're probably seeing is with that additional stripping, he's getting better light penetration from the top of the bud to wherever the bottom of that canopy is. And just the overall quality, density, you know, size of all the buds is better. That's why he's getting better yield. Um, I mean, you can take it to the extreme with a lollipop and just prune every last thing up to that, you know, final bud. But, I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of crazy. Your friends right. might like your buds better because they are bigger and nicer. <laughs> All right. Don't be self-conscious about the size of your buds. Uh, David here has a question about investing in light. One of, the, one of the questions I had is that is the value there for a rocker system for your light to get better canopy penetration? Is it given is the, is the yield that it can potentially produce worth the investment? You got any of you guys employ that where you've got light that is able to move or basically even rock to get uh, different angulation for the canopy penetration? You know, in a lot of these big facilities, there's so much you know light coverage with the number of lights. Uh, you don't really have space for movers or spinners or any of that okay do you uh, real quick question about the lighting do you believe the values there for led and ability to potential double and triple stack your grows um you know for supplemental lighting to checkerboard in with you know other types of high intensity discharge whether it's hps or ceramic metal halide or metal halide or whatever uh, you know the technology is there to produce an incredibly incredibly uh, frosty, triked out, you know, bud. Uh, I have yet to see the, the yield, you know, like all the lights that are out there. And I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that uh, being here in Colorado and being the company that we are, we get a lot of stuff that we get to test out and a lot of new products that, you know, we get to see before, you know, anybody else gets to see. And the LED stuff, man, I mean... There's some good lights out there that'll definitely make your plants frostier, um, you know, as a, as a supplement, but you still need the big light or the big light in the sky, one of the two. Don? I was just going to add that in Europe, we're using a lot of plasmas as supplement light, and that really seems to make the inner node spacing a lot tighter, and it seems to crystal out the buds faster. I don't know if that's just because they were expensive and you want them to, but... I think it, 
it makes them more crystal now. You know what I'm saying? Mike? All right. Chris uh, wants a little clarity on the beneficial bugs. All right. So you mentioned that there were beneficial insects that would kill spider mites. Could you name a few specific and where we could find them? Um, there's literally hundreds of different mites that will eat spider mites. There's probably 10 to 12 different on the, uh, the market. I would just um, Google Copert. Um, they're one of the biggest producers of beneficial insects on the planet. They've got tons of them. Um, the, you know, there's, I just Google, fish, uh, Google beneficial insects. You'll see them. There's tons of them. Yeah, predator mites, and there's a bunch of different varieties. Basically, you order them, they show up, and you, you know, they're eggs right, that, that well, you spread around. Well, they show up in, um, the ones we get show up in a, on a vermiculite base. Um, you can either take that and kind of shake it like a salt shaker, you know, all over the plants. Or um, what we do with them is we make little cups and hang them around the plants um, on our netting system um, and fill those cups up with them, and they kind of crawl out. And, you know, they're starving when you get them, so they immediately search for food and, and go from that point. Some people even use praying mantises, uh, ladybugs. Uh, there's a bunch of different insects that you can use. Um, so if you Google beneficial insects, you'll, you'll see a bunch of that. Yes, and you'll also get to see maybe the ladybugs eating the heads off of things. Yeah, Dan really likes that too much. Uh, Sean from Urban Farmer has a question about PPM. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here. A lot of people get their knowledge on YouTube, and when somebody out there says, I have a certain strain and I feed it, say, 500 PPMs, uh, that may mean something completely different uh, to a grower using a different PPM pen. And my question is, uh, can you give a little clarity as to the scale that these numbers are attached to and what they mean? Um, who wants to take that one? Okay. Um, uh, PPM is basically parts per million. What it is representing is the amount of a certain thing in a solution. Um, I actually run on um, EC, the entire warehouse, which is the measure of electrolyte conductivity. Um, I, you know, I've always found that you know, low and slow tends to be the way to do it. Um, we feed a lot more frequently um, with um, a lot more mild solution than the majority of things. Um, you hear people talking about watering, so he said something like four times a life cycle or somebody, you know, two or three times a week. Um, I water, you know, depending on the medium in wool, you know, sometimes every hour on the hour, you know, sometimes more, um, but with very low, mild solutions. So. And you also uh, have a process for cleaning the water that comes into your facility. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you get the PPMs out of the water so you can start with plain water. Um, I, you know, I don't take it to plain water exactly. What I do is I take out all the chlorine um, and the chloramides. Um, that's really all I'm after. Um, and then I add other things to, you know, sterilize it from that point even. Um, I have a very, you know, a lot of pipe in the building, you know, a, a couple miles of, you know, one and a half inch irrigation line, um, six miles of quarter inch irrigation line. Um, a lot of that stuff. Um, and it tends to, um, if the water's not treated in some way, um, grow a biofilm, um, which all pipes do. do. Um, any PVC pipe that's in your wall anywhere has this little, you know, biofilm slime that grows on it. Um, the only issue with me for that is it tends to break off from time to time, clog my irrigation. So um, we have to filter it and 
you know, take so, care of it. So the individual drippers will get clogged. Right. Yeah. And it, we don't necessarily have a nutrient problem where it, um, where the nutrient salts um, tend to build up deposits and clog our emitters. Um, for us, it was more along the lines of the biofilm. Okay. And I've also seen you guys have like air compressors, like industrial air compressors to blast through those individual drippers. Yep. Uh, uh, all right, I, you guys. Uh, Chris here has a question about light cycle. Dylan, I'm sorry. I apologize. Dylan has a question about light cycle. All right. Um, oh, I'm sorry. This question is uh, specifically for DJ Short. Um, I just want his opinion. Um, I've read that um, you can increase the production of THC by running the light an extra hour. Um, and I've, I've read things that support DJ Short's opinion about running the light, um, by, excuse me, by decreasing the light cycle by an hour. I just want his opinion on increasing the light cycle by an hour. Well, um, if you increase the light cycle by an hour, 13 on and 11 off, that's actually the veg cycle for the tropics, okay, for sativa. Um, and it takes it three to six months to switch from that 13-day, 11-night to the 11-day, 13-night. This is why sativa take forever to finish. But as far as your flowering cycle goes, my recommendation is the 11-on, 13-off. Now, if you really want to do a true sativa replication project, that would involve using that 13-11 uh, veg cycle and then do a slow switchover to the 1113, uh, and you will then begin to see the sativa uh, phenotype present itself more often. Does that answer your question? Cool. All right, Mike. All right, a Anthony has a question, and we're at the speed round, guys. Only a couple minutes left. Here we go. Is it true that if you take CO2 at a high volume on the last five days of growth, it'll speed up photosynthesis so rapidly that it'll, the THC will bust out of the crystals and like it just overstimulates the plant and it eventually kills it, but you only do it on the last five days, which is when this, the THC is being produced at the highest rate anyway, right? I think he's talking about using right, stress. Right. Um, light breaks down THC. We know from studies that the uh, cannabinoid levels are highest right before the lights go on or right before sunrise, and they're lowest right before the lights go off and uh, sunset. Uh, one of the tricks I've been incorporating for a long time is right before the chop, after I do my uh, flush, three days of dark, 72 hours of dark, still in the pot. Um, and I like to let the plant dry up in that condition. That way, when I then go to harvest it, those shade leaves are already going crisp, and um, the plant is still putting out oil and cannabinoids, and they're not being broken down by the light. Um, so that's, that's one trick of the trade in terms of uh, right before harvest, doing that 72 hours of dark. Uh, does that answer your question? Well, what, what, do you, what do you need to know? 
Oh, CO2 oh, at the end. Oh, massive amount right. of no, CO2. I, yeah, I, I don't even mess around with, with uh, uh, supplementing CO2 other than I've done little organic things with gallon pots of sugar and yeast. Um, it's not my forte in terms of upping production. Maybe somebody else. Yeah, CO2 really just bulks up plants. It stimulates photosynthesis. It, it makes up production. It, it has nothing to do with, with THC production. All right, I see the look on Dan's face. Don't get nervous. 5-0 is in the house, but uh, TJ, the sheriff here, has a question for you guys. That's when the questioning stops, when the 5-0 comes in and starts asking. Everybody have a good night. I'm honored to be on this panel. I'm honored to be in Colorado. I'm honored that law enforcement would like to sit there and ask us a question. Thank you very much for being here, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you for being here. Um, obviously, law enforcement needs to work with the people, so... Uh, we need help as well, and my question for the day is, are you folks as spokesmen going to be advocates to keep the grows to any degree out of the neighborhoods? Please, please repeat that. Are you going to be advocates for law enforcement to keep large grows out of the neighborhoods? Large-scale cultivation has no place in, a, in an urban situation or in neighborhoods. That's, that's, that's agriculture, and that should be moved out in industrial applications, out of neighborhoods. It should not be in neighborhoods. It becomes a public nuisance, the smell, the theft, everything else. So I'm in full agreement with you on that. And, and we would appreciate any help we could get on that um, as, as things are going to go the way they do. But uh, some of the neighbors are not involved in marijuana. They have children and we need as much help from the industry as, as possible to, to get it into the right areas so we don't deal with the neighborhood. Sure, and we don't commercially produce tomatoes in neighborhoods, but people do have their gardens. And the message I would like to send to law enforcement, please, what we're talking about here is the safest substance known to human beings. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that the lies went as far as they did. I'm sorry so many people believe them. But this is the case. The children are safe from this product. It's not going to harm them. And, and just one comment to that. Um, as a law enforcement official with many years of experience, I am the one going into the neighborhoods and dealing with the conflict when there's six plants or caregiver plants going to 50 plants and the neighborhood dispute, and it is very difficult to be put into that position as a law enforcement official when we do not have the answers for them and giving them an answer that you just gave me. That doesn't help 50% of the people that I need to work for as well. I work for you. I work for them, and I'm a mediator, but I need the help to get it out of the neighborhoods because it's not a tomato sometimes, and there are issues that you may not be aware of. Uh, I would just say also that uh, one of the things about the situation here is the regulation, and you know these people are an example of how that's working and how every plant from seed to sale is accounted for and all of that. So... Uh, ending marijuana prohibition will help, I think, in the enforcement of that. And uh, so we truly appreciate your cooperation with us, and we'd love to cooperate with you as well.
All right, so Dan, I think that was the first for us. Uh, here's the thing. It's 420. We're in Denver. This is a cannabis cup. We can't go out on that note. Let's get one more question. Who wants the last word? <laughs> it's almost four, guys, on 420 in legal Colorado. My name is Ski, and I'm a small-time grower, but a lot of my friends tell me that I should grow the plant onto the ground and bend it down. Is that a preferable thing? And the other thing I heard one of you guys talking about smoking two- or three-year-old marijuana that's been freeze-dried, I have that. Is there anything that I should do when I take it out of the freezer? Uh, he's talking about long-term storage and also asking okay. about uh, bending plants so that they grow along the, the ground, I guess. Oh, so you're talking, uh, we used to call that a creeper phenotype. Uh, there was a, a variety called Lowrider a while ago, not the one we're accustomed to. It, it just had that name. All of those side branches went down and along the ground. They would go out from under the greenhouse and, and come up. I'm not particularly that familiar with it. Um, what was the question on the long... It's really something people do for stealth purposes, and when you bend the plant, you can create more sure. top branches. Trailing or trellising. Uh, Flo does that really well, too. She'll, she'll go long distances. Um, as far as long-term storage, uh, try... I haven't tried this yet. Uh, vacuum out the air and uh, refill with pure nitrogen. Interesting. All right, you guys. I just want to say thank you, everybody, for being here. Uh, thank you to this panel. Philip, Don, Aaron, Scott, DJ, Kay. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I hope you guys enjoy the rest of the day. And take this vibe back home with you and make this change wherever you live. All right. So uh, there you have it. That was the panel. Uh, some interesting information, some interesting surprises there. Uh, the sheriff was certainly an eye opener. Yeah, that was that was an odd moment, I'm sure for you too. I mean, did you think that you were getting shut down when I brought him to the center, or what were you I, thinking? I just didn't know. I saw him sitting in the audience. He seemed very respectful, even when he asked the questions. He, I think, you know, I think he really did have, you know, he wasn't trying to. Uh, you know, catch us off guard or, 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 you know, have some sort of gotcha moment. I think he was really genuinely interested in finding out a little more about what was going on on, on that sort of large scale because I think there's a curiosity uh, from his perspective. Yeah, I'm sure. But I, I have to say to the, the rest of the country, uh, you know, being high as fuck and talking to a sheriff is still uncomfortable, even in <laughs> Denver. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, the badge, the gun, yeah. uh, the Unpleasant. uniform. The mustache, you know, the whole thing. <laughs> but he was a nice guy. And, he was. You know, it was really interesting to hear his perspective on things and, and, and sort of answer that without, you know, being shoved up against the wall or, right. or thrown to the ground. Or My how things have changed. He <laughs> yeah. was respectfully uh, asking a question as opposed to intimidating. And yeah, but yeah. I'm glad we didn't give him the last word at that seminar. <laughs> that was important to us, even though time was really running short. And um, it was right before 420. So yeah. basically right after that seminar, everybody went and, and, and lit up. So hopefully you guys, after hearing it, will go and uh, ceremonially light up like we all did at the event as well. Absolutely. Well, um, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I am tired as hell. Oh, that man. was a crazy cup. I know. I'm still recovering. I want to thank everyone that appeared mm. on the panel. Kenny, uh, Scott, DJ Short, Don and Aaron, uh, Philip, uh, you know, our sponsors, Gorilla, uh, C-Bank and BC Northern Lights. 
everybody who was at the Cannabis Cup, all the, the bud tenders and the workers and everyone who just made it possible for that many people to get together and celebrate the plant. You guys, uh, we couldn't do it without you. Um, and we really, truly appreciate all the support and kind words. Absolutely. And uh, we'll do it again in Northern California in June, right? Yeah, yeah. So if you missed it or if you went and you loved it, come to uh, NorCal in June. Tickets are on sale at CannabisCup.com. Check out all the videos from the event if you were there or if you weren't there and you want to get super jelly. uh, (laughs) Yeah, just check it out online, uh, you know, YouTube. And check out those winners. A lot of great a lot of great weed and hash and edibles over there and you can check them out on hightimes.com so I think do we that. even we even have like drone footage from above the event we do yeah. yes we have our, our special high times drone which is <laughs> operated at our uh, underground base we need to start dropping seeds out of that thing Ooh, that's yeah, a good idea that's a really good idea right? yeah it is Little seed bombs i like it yeah. yeah i don't know if it's in the budget but we'll see what we could do right. build me a prototype exactly all right so it's uh, wrapped up with raw it's almost wrapped up but one more thing before we go i don't want to name drop here but stick around for episode 63 i think you guys are going to be excited about who we talk to yes indeed a little teaser yeah put this one in the books fire it up breathe it in deep exhale and release we're gonna get some sleep <laughs>